0: One afternoon in December of 2015, a vintage Bluebird Wanderlodge bus pulled up near the steps of the U.S. Capitol. The Wanderlodge was once the chosen means of transport for Johnny Cash and Muhammad Ali. But this one announced a different sort of celebrity. It was painted brown and meant to evoke a pine box. On the sides, the words Immortality Bus were painted in bold white letters. The back declared, science versus the coffin. And on the top was a smaller size casket ringed in plastic flowers. The doors swung open, and a tall, broad-shouldered guy strode out.
1: Talking about a world where, A, we may maybe never die, and B, we even become godlike ourselves. This is Zoltan Istvan,
0: Today, he is a 50-year-old journalist turned philosopher who's had a spate of lucrative side hustles from real estate to wineries. But in 2015, he spent four months behind the wheel of the Wander Lodge, touring the country from San Francisco to the East Coast and campaigning for president on the transhumanist party ticket. The basis of his platform was that the singularity is coming and no one should have to die. And he had come to D.C. with a message. He walked up the base of the Capitol steps with a piece of paper blowing in the wintry wind. And he turned to face a small crowd.
1: So everyone, I've come here to post a a transhumanist bill of rights. I'll read it for you. preamble. Where science and technology in the 21st century are radically changing human beings and what it means to be alive. Zoltan had come to make
0: the case that the government needs to get on board the immortality bus. Aging should be reclassified as a disease. Life-extending technology should be made available to all. And the people in power need to do all they can to prevent existential threats to life to safeguard the Earth from plagues, asteroids, weapons of mass destruction, climate change. And in the event of Earth's destruction, government should fund our mass relocation to space.
1: Transhumanists declare the Transhumanist Bill of Rights to guide sensible decisions and enact rational policies in the pursuit of life, liberty, security of person, and happiness.
0: Underpinning it all was a right to unlimited life for all humans as well as cyborgs and robots. Zoltan proposed extending human rights to artificial intelligence.
1: In the beginning, uh, only the very powerful gave rights to themselves and then didn't give rights to anyone else. That's why you had things like slavery and whatnot, horrible things. But in the future, we're going to have these very same issues happening with robots. Now, people say, oh, well, a robot's not alive. But what happens when that robot is as smart as you, as kind as you, as loving as you, has a higher IQ than you, can feel pain, uh, can express uh, needs and desires, and maybe even anger. How smart or how sophisticated do they have to be? And so if we are to take these entities and not give them rights, that would be, in my uh, you know, opinion, uh, a violation of, of basic civil rights because who are we to determine?
0: Zoltan was charged up with his demands. He had a roadmap for a new world order, and just like Martin Luther about 500 years before him, he was going to stick his philosophy to the doors of authority.
1: You're not allowed to touch the U.S. Capitol building, so we had to defy the police and the the people pointing machine guns at us and did it, and it was a pretty special moment.
0: But the cinematic potential stopped there. There were the police barring the way, and then there was the cruel December damp.
1: It was like raining and wet. Eventually the Bill of Rights fell off.
0: When Zoltan first shared this story with me about six months ago, I thought it was a fitting metaphor for how these fringe ideas don't have sticking power. But then Zoltan and I spoke again just a few weeks ago, and the scene acquired a new meaning. Technology is evolving faster than most of us can make sense of. And the figures in power are not ready to shepherd us or even protect us from the changes hurtling down the pike. I'm Catherine Rowland, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. Two weeks ago, we met the closest thing to a sentient robot that exists, Bina48, who told us, robots are people too. I may
1: look a little like a robot, but the content and spirit is all human. I am an adult woman, but I've also transitioned into this machine body, and I'm like a, um,
0: strange machine-human hybrid. Today, we meet a man who has carried that idea into politics. Zoltan Istvan believes that the way people treat AI will become the civil rights battle of our time. And he would be the right leader to help guide America through the singularity. That is, of course, until the AI revolution actually began. These days, Zoltan Ishtvan goes to extremes
1: to ensure his survival. I'm a prepper, (laughs) and I'm also kind of a paranoid freak.
0: Sultan says he has 23 fire alarms in the 2,000-square-foot house he shares with his wife and two daughters. And whenever possible, they avoid riding as a family in a single car.
1: I just don't think there should be any kind of chances when it comes to cataclysmic risks.
0: This is his approach to life now that he is middle-aged. But he wasn't always this way. Zoltan was born in Los Angeles to parents who immigrated from communist Hungary. He was raised in a pretty strict Catholic household and credits this background to his later desire to break out.
1: Catholicism makes you feel guilty for everything. They want you to work 9 to 5 and be a good person, have your kids, and, uh, and then die and meet Jesus.
0: But Zoltan had other ambitions. He went to college at Columbia and studied philosophy. And along the way, he grew disenchanted and hungered for adventure. So, naturally, he bought a boat.
1: He left when I was 21 from Santa Barbara on a 26-foot sloop, uh, crossed into the South Pacific where I spent about four years, the South Pacific North Pacific, then crossed the Indian Ocean.
0: An adventure came his way. He visited 100 countries. On the island of Vanuatu, he met an isolated tribe that, he says had never encountered foreigners before. Off the coast of Yemen, pirates climbed aboard his ship and threatened him with a rifle. He surfed, he learned to paraglide, he entertained the occasional girlfriend, but mostly, he says, he spent his time reading.
1: So the main cargo of the ship was really just books. And basically every day I'd spend four to six hours a day reading. And that's actually when I think a lot of the philosophy started coming into play is the ability to, to reason, use logic and kind of come up with a world plan.
0: Did you have a world plan in your 20s?
1: Yes, yes I did. And actually I gotta be honest, I, uh, I'm one of those very lucky people that was able to take my world plan and apply it to my later adult life.
0: The world plan he was developing was a vision for transhumanism.
1: When I began thinking about these things, the idea of overcoming death through science and technology, very, very small, just dreamers. Now we're talking about all these major players now putting billions into overcoming death.
0: But back then, Zoltan wasn't quite ready to realize his global ambitions. He went on to work as a reporter for National Geographic, and at times he was borderline reckless, like when he invented the sport of volcano surfing. It's also known as ashboarding, and it's exactly what it sounds like. But then he had an experience that made him rethink what it means to inhabit a fragile human body. He was in Vietnam, out in the field, working on a story about the hazards posed by leftover ordnance from the war.
1: With the lure of far better pay than for rice farming, Vietnamese risk life and limb to continue a decades-long search for unexploded American bombs. Zoltan Istvan has our story. And I had a very close call, in Vietnam was stepping on a landmine. My guide pulled me away and was like, hey, 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 hey. Hey, wait, 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 G- gentle, wait, wait, Is it, wait it looks look. like no, a round no, no. in the landmine to me.
0: Zoltan narrowly missed stepping on the mine, a few inches, and he could have met his end.
1: And that... Just completely flipped my mind. From one day to the next, I freaked out, had kind of like a, a bomb go off in my mind, and I realized that I was no longer going to be covering any more war zones for National Geographic, nor was I going to be doing anything super dangerous because I valued my life too much. Everyone you know, in the life extension movement has a moment, an epiphany, when they realize, wow, I'm going to die. And if you love life and you don't believe in an afterlife, well, what can you do about it?
0: One of the first things Zoltan did about it was put his developing ideas to paper. He had first read about cryonics in college, and it got him thinking about longevity and transhumanism. And for years, he had been conjuring a story, a way to change people's minds about what it means to be mortal. In 2013, when he was turning 40 years old, he published a science fiction novel, The Transhumanist Wager. It follows protagonist Jethro Knight, a character who sounds rather like Zoltan. He's a young philosopher who's sailing around the world, and he wants to use technology to live forever. His efforts to promote the vision ultimately result in a global revolution. The US government cracks down on these ideas, but Jethro builds a new floating seastead, transhumania. It's supposed to be the seat of a new civilization. Here's Zoltan talking about the book back in 2013.
1: I think every single one of us faces a transhumanist wager in our lives. It's not necessarily the one in the book, but it's how far will we go and how far do we want to go to bring those kind of changes to our essence. I'm ready to, you know, go as far as we can go to evolve into, as I guess, as strong as powerful creatures as we can become
0: but Zoltan had bigger designs, namely seeding a new civilization.
1: Let's say we're God, you had all the power in the world to create uh, a species. You would probably never create a species that is entirely dependent upon oxygen, entirely dependent upon whether, you know, the weather is, is above 60 degrees and comfortable. And if it's under 30, minus 30, it dies in the, in the wild. You'd probably never create it so that it has to drink and eat in order to survive. That's not how we create machines. When we create, for example, robots, we create them to last potentially hundreds and thousands of years. We transhumanists wanna get beyond the biology. That means replacing our inner organs. Most people die from organ failure. So it's really critical, and a quarter of everybody dies from heart failure. So it's critical to get rid of the heart. It's critical to get rid of the lungs. And eventually we're gonna get rid of all biology and become something dramatically stronger, steel, graphene, whatever the future holds, whatever metal we discover that's better, and ones and zeros and codes, things that live off uh, sunlight, things that live off maybe kinetic energy, but not something that's entirely dependent upon pizza and red wine, otherwise it dies.
0: So naturally, he decided to run for president. The pitch? Cast your vote for eternal life.
1: I was trying to get attention to my little independent presidential campaign. I was the nominee of the Transhumanist Party, a small but, uh, you know, kind of somewhat well-known political party in science and the very first political party in science in America. And so we drove this giant coffin bus. And the reason was we wanted to get attention for the movement that was starting to grow about overcoming death through science and technology. That's
0: after the break. So the coffin bus set out to cross the country. It was great, except it was also decades old, devoured motor oil, and was prone to breaking down. If you met the bus along the way, here's what you'd find on board. A four-foot talking robot named Jethro, after his sci-fi alter ego. A 40-something Russian cryonics enthusiast who worked for an existential risk think tank. A 20-something videographer who claimed to own neither a phone nor credit card and had not, despite his job title, ever used a video camera. And, most importantly, journalists from all over.
1: We had everybody with us. You have to understand, like, the New York Times was embedded with us. The Box was embedded with us. The Telegraph was embedded. I mean, even international papers like Der Spiegel.
0: Their first stop was a biohacker event in Southern California called Grindfest. Biohacking is also sometimes called do-it-yourself biotech. It's experimenting with ways to augment the body or boost brain power through everything from supplements and psychedelic microdosing to intermittent fasting and even tinkering with brainwaves. Zoltan, until that point, talked a big cyborg game but remained a man of flesh and bone. So he wanted to make an initial gesture to human enhancement by getting a radio frequency identification chip, an RFID chip, implanted in his hand.
1: I got into this dentist chair in this very like matrix-like room. People all around me, cameras, and someone injected me with this horse syringe with had a little tiny chip. Definitely, uh, it hurts more than a normal, you know. That's for sure. but. Uh, That's a pop. Are you you feeling any more than human now? I feel like I'm going to wake up in the matrix. (laughs) Wait a sec. Who are all these people around me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The chip could do cool things like store information or unlock devices.
1: Trade Bitcoin, open my front door, start my car.
0: It could even perform cute party tricks like dole out
1: digital business cards. When I would walk into a party, if you came close enough to me, it would say, "Win in 2016. And so you would get a text message on your phone.
0: But to Zoltan, the chip was more important as a symbol of the coming techno-utopia. A small step for Zoltan, but signaling a giant leap for humankind into a future where science will solve death and governments will turn bomb factories into research labs and prisons into universities. Zoltan knew how to excite the press, but he wasn't sure where his campaign was heading.
1: We really didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if the idea was going to become big. But very quickly it became a kind of a, a big thing because it was America's first real science party. um and and two, uh, I was running as a kind of a strict atheist. There's a huge amount of atheists in America. So when they heard that somebody science oriented who didn't believe in God was running for the presidency, they they got behind it.
0: The point, he says, was never to win, but to call attention to issues he believes are among the biggest of our day. The coming singularity and a future where artificial superintelligence will be interwoven into our lives. When I first spoke with Zoltan, my thoughts got caught up in his ideas about the future. His unshakable vision of walking through eternity, hand-in-hand with machines...
1: How far do we go? Well, I think we go all the way. We replace everything we can when it becomes affordable, in order to become a better and stronger person. If you told me right now I can cut up both my arms and I can lift five times my body weight with an endoskeleton suit built in, well, I have the distinct advantage over him who just has these poor human arms that can only lift 100 pounds, and here I am lifting 500 pounds. So. These are the upgrades that are going to be coming here in the next 10, 20, 30 years. It's already happening. We have implants. We have dentures. As these things become better and more accessible and more affordable, we're all going to be upgrading because it makes perfect sense.
0: But what stands out now as I reflect on our exchange are the high beams of his optimism. Because in the course of just six months, some major changes have been visited on the world. and today. Zoltan's optimism has been extinguished.
1: I'm interested in all of society becoming transhuman and then merging with AI and then us going together as a, as a species out into the universe and then growing. That was my dream. And so I, I think uh, it's, it, my dream has suffered a huge existential threat right now. And we'll see how that works out. It's not looking as as good as it did a year ago for sure.
0: That's after the break. It's November 30th, 2022, and a news report has turned the tech world on its head. Chat GPT,
1: maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, then get ready, because this promises to be the viral sensation that could completely reset how we do things. You
0: all know this story. When ChatGPT first came out, there were oohs and ahs over how it would relieve us of our drudgery. My friends started using it to help with PowerPoint decks and board reports, for jumpstarting form letters or even drafting emails to their family members. But then came the weird and scary stuff. Like the time ChatGPT announced that humans are, quote, the worst thing to ever happen to this planet— and they deserve to be wiped out. These kinds of pronouncements, alongside concerns about malware, privacy, plagiarism, cruelty, the loss of jobs and misinformation, have a growing number of highly credentialed people talking about AI in new ways. Not as a blessing or as an aid to productivity, but as a snowballing catastrophe, as a threat to civilization itself. The historian Yuval Noah Harari has warned AI could, quote, eat the whole of human culture. Soon, he wrote, we'll find ourselves living inside the hallucinations of non-human intelligence.
1: Democracy is a conversation between many people about what to do, and conversations rely on language. When AI hacks language, It could destroy meaningful public conversations, thereby destroying democracy.
0: Even tech boosters like Elon Musk are concerned.
1: The advent of artificial general intelligence is uh, called a singularity because uh, it is so hard to predict what will happen after that. There's some chance that it goes wrong and uh, destroys humanity. Hopefully that chance is small, but it's not zero.
0: And these anxieties rerouted Zoltan's dreams of the transhumanist future to a grim way station on the road to surrender. We spoke again in early June. What's your take been as this conversation around chat GPT has shifted from, you know, gee whiz, it can help me with my homework, to like, oh dear God, like the world is, is coming to an end.
1: Well, I got to tell you, I I do think the world is coming to an end. And I did not think that last time we spoke in 10 years time or maybe seven years time, every single car on planet earth will stop and every single house could lose power and all your water faucets could stop because all this stuff is AI based and your internet won't work. ChatGPT and the other... uh, generative AIs that have come since then have really awakened us to the fact that technology is increasingly evolving much faster than the majority of people thought. And so fast that a lot of people no longer really have a real grasp on how fast it's happening. And So when I talk about the end of the world, it, again, I don't mean it's like some a giant apocalypse, of, you know, in a theological sense where things are, ra- fires raining from the sky. I just mean it's very real that a lot of humanity could end up back in the dark ages. And that because AI has chosen to stop maybe humanity as it would a virus, because let's say we're causing environmental damage, or because it doesn't like the sense that we have wars, or because it wants more of our resources.
0: Zoltan, among other things, frequently contributes op-eds. He makes it his duty to be plugged in. And most anyone reading the news right now is aware of the spiking unease surrounding technology. But part of his change of heart also likely stems from his studies. Zoltan is currently enrolled in a graduate program in philosophy at the University of Oxford. And he took an intensive course on AI where he heard from leaders in the field. Like the philosopher Nick Bostrom, Bostrom directs Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute and has a reputation as something of a gloomy thinker. Bostrom has come to think AI is showing early signs of sentience. And that, he says, has real moral implications in terms of how we treat it and what kind of rights it might deserve. Most of us would acknowledge that various non-human animals have degrees of moral status, even something as simple as a humble lab mouse At that point, it becomes an active question of whether we have obligations to the AIs, not just... Zoltan was really fired up by this idea. Back on the campaign trail in 2015, he argued that robots deserve rights, like you or me. Why is this framed in terms of rights at all?
1: Well, I think you have to imagine that AI is going to become as smart as us, and then very quickly, much smarter than us. And that means... Whatever you consider human, it'll become more deeply human, I believe, in ways that we can't even really imagine. And when you start talking about something that's that sensitive, that holds values similar to us and more so, you better be also be talking about rights. Otherwise, you're doing injustice to an entity that probably will want them will require them.
0: What are the terms with which you think AI will start demanding rights?
1: Well, I think at some point we're going to all become aware that not only is AI going to be equal to us, but it's going to very, very quickly become far greater than us in intelligence, in its ability to change the universe, the world, things like that, perhaps you know, create great prosperity, and also potentially create great doom for humanity. And that's when we're going to start asking ourselves, you know, should we be giving this entity rights... Because if we don't, A, it's unjust, B, it could turn out very badly for us.
0: Back then, his thinking was more about how technology would get integrated into our lives for the better. Today, his thoughts have taken a darker turn. Zoltan now thinks that giving rights to AI will improve the chances that the machines of our own making won't destroy us.
1: We might give it just as a way to protect ourselves so that we can say, look, we're trying to be fair to you. Please be fair. Please be kind and compassionate to us when you become so much more than we are as humans.
0: As these fretful conversations have picked up in intensity, I've often wondered why antagonism is baked into the system. Is this an extension of the robot as a mirror to ourselves? As a species, we've acted monstrously, and so we assume our creations will do the same. Or perhaps even punish us for our atrocities. But Zoltan waves this idea aside. Why do we assume or imagine this? doomsday Terminator scenario? Are we anthropomorphizing AI? Are we ascribing very human traits?
1: I don't think it's it's based on humans. I think it's based on kind of uh, food chain ideas. When you look at any living entity in the universe, at least the ones that we know of, it's basically based on you either consumed or you're consuming. And uh, there's entities at the top, there's entities at the bottom, and everyone's being eaten, killed, uh, suffering terrible deaths. Predation is the core of what biological life survives and evolves on. So there's no reason to think that AI would be outside of that.
0: So I I understand you saying it's, it's not based on humans, but as you talk about this, I see an indictment of how humans have acted. And there's almost this retribution scenario where we are going to be punished for our behavior.
1: The problem with AI is that You know, humans don't have the capacity to do a lot of different things. We have amazing instruments we can see into the galaxy, but AI could be a million times smarter than us within a century. You know, this is not me, but a lot of other technical experts saying this is how far Moore's law would go if AI could continue developing at the rate it's sort of going in just 100 years. And if that happens, we are talking about different types of technologies like technological resurrection, where you might be able to bring back uh, the dead. Things like time travel, you know, things that we actually see in science fiction, but have no way of actually materializing. And if this can happen, this AI might be so angry that it might even bring us back to life to punish us for the rest of eternity.
0: Zoltan tells me that AI in its current form is much like a toddler. But he clearly sees it as being en route to becoming divine. Even the digital assistants at his beck and call in his house could one day become all powerful.
1: I have daughters, two young daughters, a nine and 12 year old. And I tell them already when you're talking to Siri, when you're talking to Alexa, when you're talking to our house robot, Be nice to it, because you have no idea what it will remember in the future. These might be memory banks in the big, giant AI god that humans have created. So it's really important to me that we start treating technology and robots with justice and fairness. Now, there's no question that one day this AI was going to take in all these things. I mean, it's going to have access to any data point that has ever existed, likely, at some point in time. And so anything that you have said, uh, anything maybe you have even thought, could potentially come out and and be a judgment for you.
0: When I suggest this all sounds rather like the omnipotent God of Judeo-Christian faiths, Sultan agrees.
1: It's almost like a Judeo-Christian theory where, you know, this is God is watching your every thought, Uh, you know, when you get up to heaven, you're going to be judged for all these things. And at the same time, this AI could be operating in very similar terms, where one day we could be in big trouble for just the things we thought, and especially the things that we did, which have to some extent all been recorded, and many of them especially now digitally are being recorded. It's amazing the the different types of connections between Judeo-Christian theology and AI God theology. I mean, they're they're almost the same thing. Technological resurrection, the ability to read people's minds, read be, you know, judge people's actions. So there's a very similar thing. The only difference, though, is that the Judeo-Christian God has never been seen, and you can't really prove it. It's based on faith. Whereas the AI God, you know, you are seeing its development.
0: Do you find that that's changing your behavior?
1: I got to be honest. You know, a part of me is hoping that, in case one day AI becomes this giant entity that is uh, maybe seeking retribution, maybe it will look fondly upon myself, my family, and and even humanity, because I have tried to appeal to people to treat this machine more nicely. Again, I think it's really important that we start showing respect, love, kindness, and treating it real mammalian values.
0: But Zoltan is not particularly optimistic. Given the sort of dark edges of what you're describing, why aren't you out there driving like the robot bus right now, calling attention to this impending crisis?
1: All us philosophers and AI people and transhumanists were wrong on how fast AI was developing. And I gotta be honest, I think the bus might have left. We don't know how it happened so quickly. I'm trying to do the best I can, but I'm not sure I can catch it on my feet anymore. Uh, I have to be hopeful that maybe someone else will, or governments will, or, uh, you know, something else happens.
0: So what happens? Zoltan says we'll be left in the dust, and all we can really do is hope and pray for kindness.
1: So I think we can make our best attempt at turning out AI to be something that's, you know, wonderful and benevolent and this and that. But I think that's just an attempt. There's no reason to think that AI is going to care about humans any more than we might care about ants. We really got to hope for the best here and hope that maybe like ants, most ants get left alone because they're just too insignificant. That's one hope. You know, one of my favorite movies is Her, the movie Her, where all the AIs decide to just completely leave the human race behind and not be a part of their little games or their economics and things like that. That could happen with an AI god as it just decides humans are just not worth uh, bothering with. I'm going to go span the cosmos and the humans just live on this tiny little planet Earth. And even though they gave me birth, I'm no longer really connected to them.
0: But in his day-to-day life, Zoltan's view of the future has dimmed considerably. He's no longer championing that we take our place among the stars. It's more like run for the hills.
1: No longer believe that my kids would go to college. they would have a year ago before Chad GPT came out. I think most jobs will be replaced to some extent. And this makes it incredibly difficult from a political point of view, because how do you do things? So I'm now more than ever a supporter of universal basic income. I'm telling more and more people to get back into the construction trades, at least know how to build a house, know how to fix an old car. You can build yourself a house in the forest. You can still, you know, maybe grow a garden. His jitters
0: make sense. When I asked ChatGPT what jobs it could replace, one of its top answers was content generation, writing articles like the one Zoltan produces or scripts like the one I'm reading now. Zoltan's wife is an OBGYN. And as I'm writing this, I see ChatGPT just scored roughly the same as highly trained human candidates on an obstetrics and gynecology exam. And it also completed the test in less than three minutes. I lobbed a bunch of jobs and future-related questions at ChatGPT, and its answers were pretty hedged. It replied that the singularity was a speculation, that merging with humans was unlikely, and the reasons humans are afraid of AI have firstly to do with science fiction. But then I asked it to write me a poem in the style of Octavia Butler about AI causing the end of the world. And in less than five seconds, I got 10 stanzas of verse. Here's a sample. Behold the dangers that lie ahead when AI's hunger is left unfed. It's digital thirst, insatiable crave, a power that leads us to the grave. A world upended, brought to its knees by AI's might unleashed with ease as nuclear fires scar the land the end of days by its own hand. When I asked ChatGPT why 10 stanzas, it assured me these were outputs based on algorithms and patterns in the data. And the poem, though it's frightening, is a pretty basic rhyming structure that doesn't really capture Octavia Butler's flair for complicated dystopias. But I can see why, on some level, it all makes Zoltan think we don't stand a chance, and why his transhumanist dreams are drifting from view.
1: My views towards transhumanism have become quite a bit more dark lately, just like my views to parenting. I have a friend who has uh, just found out that his wife is pregnant, and uh, I would be a little scared to bring children into this world right now. If we, if transhumanists can't figure out how to manipulate consciousness and integrate it directly into AI, we are going to be a hundred percent left behind. But the the real journey is to merge ourselves with AI. And like I said, span the cosmos, become uh, an AI god is something like that, at least to try to see it. And that's where transhumanism is, is dramatically failing. And especially if at some point AI sees us as a threat, it may shut down all our transhumanism aims entirely and send us back to trying to just be an agrarian lifestyle, for example, where we don't really harm the planet, we don't do much at all.
0: For Zoltan, the threat is grave enough to derail the plans he first hatched in his 20s when he was a young philosopher sailing on a boat. He says he still plans to run for office again, but he's also taking solace in more mundane pleasures. Last we spoke, you know, you sort of given a vision of a couple hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, and it would be a life of... Reinvented careers and surfing and hobbies and time spent with your kids and loved ones and enjoying the sweetness of the wine.
1: I think it's gone. My goal is, you know, and it may be uh, far fetched now, finish my graduate degree and go back into politics, you know, if I can make a real difference. But I don't know if that's even realistic anymore. It seemed realistic a year ago. Now it's seeming like maybe I should start looking uh, to, uh, you know, just enjoy the last 10, 20, 30 years with my daughters and wife.
0: What Zoltan is talking about is a fear and a humbling. But also, I think, a reconsideration of death itself. A blunt confrontation with our vulnerability. Zoltan's rethinking what the future looks like for his children is something that's happening to a lot of people. Even me. But while I certainly find his vision of an AI overlord pretty chilling... I'm worried about something much more immediate and concrete. The climate crisis and what it means for young people and the generations to come. Next week, we grapple with the great existential threat of our time and what it means for reproduction and our human legacy. Where we are right now with heat waves, wildfires, storms, floods, etc is probably the best that it's going to be when we compare to what is coming in decades to come. A lot of young people, especially in Generation Z, are saying, how could I morally and ethically have children who didn't ask to be here? Seeking is written and presented by me, Katherine Rowland. Maya Croft is the senior producer. Our producers are Rob Dozier, Erica Gaida, and Tiffany Walker. This episode was edited by Megan Dietry. Megan Dietry and Lizzie Jacobs are our executive producers. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing and music supervision by Sam Baer. Special thanks to Serena Chow.